Michael, wonderful to talk to you. I've missed you, and we haven't talked in a little while, but I'm always thinking of you, and so I'm so grateful for your voice um, of Thank common you. sense, conservatism, um, which has always steadied me, I have to say. Um, you know, you. your, your, your intuition is on the money. I mean, the, the truth of the matter is that politics today, particularly now, is, is really all about riling people up and, you know, getting, trying to kind of capture their brain chemistry. And so whether you're talking about a primary debate or a, or a general debate, what they're going to be doing is to try to get people mobilized to feel a sense of disgust and anger toward the people that support the other person. This is a brain capture phenomenon. Look, I teach neuroscience um, around happiness at Harvard University. It's one of the things I talk about all the time. Bad leadership captures people's brains. It makes them feel hostility and disgust and anger and contempt. And this is a bad practice because it leads to really crummy leadership. So one of the ways I protect myself is I read coverage of debates after the fact. I look at a couple <laughs> of clips and I don't watch the whole thing. Well, it was two hours last night of two people who were really angry with each other. And what I was thinking of was in American political history, as you very well know, we have a history of uh, major politicians who describe themselves or were described as the happy warrior. Al Smith was the right. happy warrior. Hubert Humphrey was the happy warrior. Nobody became famous being the angry warrior. I mean, if yeah, you look yeah, back at American yeah. political history, so the anger of two Republicans, two conservatives against one another uh, is is just uh, de depressing, I think, for a lot of people to watch. If you were advising people in, in one campaign or another, what's the secret to maybe connecting with the American public, with the voting public, on a more positive level. Yeah, so you, you mentioned a couple of politicians that were known as happy warriors, and, and, and both of them lost, Hubert, hum, Hubert Humphrey and, and L. Smith. But two happy warriors won, most notably Bill Clinton and Ronald Reagan, were both known as being Franklin relatively Franklin Roosevelt? Yeah, Franklin Roosevelt. These were not relentlessly positive. They had times when they actually were critical. And Ronald Reagan, he had some righteous anger about him. But fundamentally, he was a sunny character. Now, what was their secret? The answer was they weren't working in three-day cycles of everything political. They were thinking of their political campaigns over the long term. You can be very positive and prosper if you're thinking about a campaign as taking a few months or a year and a half, which is the way that these things actually should work, as opposed to listening to political advisors who are telling you to be as angry as possible and work off the news cycle from minute to minute to minute. And that's what we've done over the past few years. Plus, quite frankly, I don't see anybody right now who's got the skills of somebody like Bill Clinton or especially like, you know, the great Ronald Reagan. <laughs> the sine qua non of political excellence, who the first person that I ever recognized who was conservative. I grew up near you. I grew up in Seattle, Washington, you know, your hometown as well. And I never even knew anybody who voted for Reagan, but I heard him after he won. And I thought, I believe that that man loves me. Why? Not because he was angry and saying I was stupid and evil because I came from a Democrat family. No, but because he wanted me to prosper and to be successful. And that's what we need more of. And it can work if you take enough time. And he carried the state of Washington in 1984, which, again, when you look back, uh, I, I believe he is the last Republican to have actually captured the state of Washington in a presidential race. Uh, the the right. secret the secret of um, projecting 
happiness at the same time that you're projecting compassion and concern for people who may be suffering. Uh, how do you balance those two needs for a political leader? Well, it's a very happy thing to be fighting for people who need you. That is a that is a the kind of struggle that actually should bring out the happiest things in you. One of the things that I find, for example, is that when, when I find somebody who's lonely or depressed, the first thing that I recommend to them, my students, for example, is that they go volunteer for others. That doesn't mean that they're angry and, and you know, foaming at the mouth all the time. They're doing actually what needs to get done. And sometimes that, that is a little bit of justified criticism, but fundamentally it's happy work to be standing up for the people who, who need you. That's the first point. But here's an even more important point about it. If you have values that you really think are right and that people need to hear about, your opinions, your, your, your political ethics, your morals are something that people should share. You have two choices in the way that you're going to share them. You can share them as a weapon or you can share them as a gift. And, you know, newsflash, if you share your values as a, as a weapon with others, they're not going to be beautiful and nobody's going to want to listen to you who doesn't agree with you already. And that's a very important thing that we all need to keep in mind. If you want converse and you want to convince people, you better use your values as a gift. And so you better make it beautiful. Uh, you uh, have made it beautiful in your most recent book. It's called Build the Life You Want, The Art and Science of Getting Happier. And <laughs> if they had such a thing as a professor of happiness, you would have that title and that job in mm. uh, at Harvard University. Uh, we will talk a little bit uh, further about that in a moment, but I should say that Arthur's new book is co-written by uh, one of the most admired people in America, and she maintains that status, uh, Oprah Winfrey. How does, how does Oprah's amazing career work in with what you're writing about? Well, I, I didn't know Oprah Winfrey before we started working together about two years ago. And, and she, it turns out that during the coronavirus epidemic, she was reading my column in The Atlantic, which comes out every Thursday morning, on the science of happiness. I mean, you never know. I mean, you, you've been, you know, writing it in the public world for a very long time. You don't know who's listening. You know, it's just if there's 500,000 readers and one might be Oprah Winfrey, and sure enough. And then I had a book that came out in 2022, which she read. She gave me a call and said, this is Oprah Winfrey. And I said, yeah, right. And this is Batman. Uh, you know, tell me another one. Turns out it was really Oprah Winfrey. And she, and she said, um, I think that we have the same mission in life. I said, well, tell me more. She said, you're a scientist. You're dedicated to lifting people up and bringing them together using science and ideas. She said, I work in media. I want to lift people up and bring them together by sharing ideas. What if we share some ideas that we cook up together that are based in science with a big audience? And I said, sign me up. And we've been just thick as thieves ever since, I have to say. Look, she and I don't vote the same way. We haven't had the same set of experiences no, nothing like that. But w we want more love and happiness for more people. We both believe that the United States is the greatest, most upwardly mobile, prosperous, charitable country in the history of the world. We're both patriotic. We both love this country. And we want to bring the, the ability to get happier to millions if we possibly can. What an honor it's been to work with her on that mission. And right here on The Medved Show, we are back with Arthur C. Brooks, whose title is the Parker Gilbert Montgomery Professor of the Practice of Public and Nonprofit Leadership at the Harvard uh, Kennedy School. 
and professor of management practice at the Harvard Business School, where he teaches courses on leadership, happiness, and social entrepreneurship. Arthur, considering your deep involvement with two of the major components of Harvard University, I understand they're looking for a new president. Uh, is that a job you would be interested in? You know, I'm, I'm, I'm always available to consult to anybody who needs advice, I have to say, because, you know, the truth is that what Harvard needs is the same thing that what America needs. You know, we need presidential candidates who want to make America happy again, for Pete's sake. And, and we also need people who, who should be thinking about how to make Harvard University a, a place of beauty and happiness on the basis of inquiry, of learning, of disagreement in a civil and loving way. All the great things that, that most people remember about their college education and that we should be able to get back today. And I believe that at Harvard we can. And I kind of think, Michael, that we can do that in America, too. <laughs> what a what a great thought. There are a lot of people who in the past have talked about your co-author, your co-author for your most recent book, Build the Life You Want. Your co-author is Oprah Winfrey. Uh, she has no enduring presidential ambitions, does she? No, not that I'm aware of. Certainly, you know, we've, that, that has been, you know, raised a hundred times or a thousand times in the press. And, and she's always batted that away. And, and, you know, well, she should. She has, a, you know, a lot of important work to do outside of that in, in the culture. And, and I'm kind of glad she's not going to do that because I have a whole bunch of projects I want to do with her as well. And a presidential campaign would be, let's just say, pretty distracting. <laughs> yes, it could be distracting. Okay, to get to this presidential campaign right now, there was a piece by Frank Brunei in uh, the New York Times, which uh, just uh, rang a few bells with me, where he talked about the use of the phrase, the final conflict, which is, by the way, a, a phrase that's used in the international Marxist song, the Internationala, uh, and this is the final conflict. Uh, Trump has been saying that repeatedly. And by the way, so has Biden. They have both talked about this as the final conflict, that if uh, we don't win, if I don't win, if our side isn't successful, it's the end of everything. You know, America gets wiped out. <laughs> Why yeah. is that such a destructive message for our country? Well, to begin with, it's destructive because it's a lie. It's completely untrue. I mean, look, Michael, we have a we have you know a memory that's good enough to go back to 2012 when people were saying this is the most important election in American history. We may or may not have well-run elections after this if unless our guy wins. This was Romney versus Obama for Pete's sake. You know, I knew tons <laughs> of people who said, "Look, I have an opinion, but it's okay if the other guy wins." Remember the quaint old days when that was the case. And, and every, what happens is that the, the political parties and the political activists who have entirely too much power in this country, if you want to know why everybody's so miserable, it's because activists have control of our political system. And, and what they tell us every single time to whip us up into a frenzy, to get us to, to send $10 checks and to make sure we vote in the primaries and, and scream and yell on social media and make ourselves completely crazy – is that they say this is it. You know, Biden says and, and his supporters say if it, Biden doesn't win, that Trump is going to come in with his jackbooted thugs and that's going to be the end. And, and Trump is saying something like the same, or at least his supporters are. And the truth is, it's a lie. It's not true. I got a dirty little secret for everybody, which is America is going to be okay. I might like it better. I might like it less under one president or the other. But the, our system is incredibly strong. Our Constitution is totally sound, and this country is going to endure. 
The uh, at his town hall last night, uh, it was impossible not to notice that uh, Donald Trump seemed to be taking a turn in a more positive direction with his campaign. He had used the term retribution, that he was seeking retribution and that he was going to get even with people. He said, no, no, I'm going to be too busy making America great again to bother with retribution. He sort of put that aside on the back burner. Is that an encouraging development? And uh, the the idea of making America great again, that was a phrase that even the great Ronald Reagan talked about. Uh, what about uh, using the term making America sane again? Because that seems to be a theme in your work. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I would very much like to see a I think America is plenty sane. I just think that the politics is pretty insane, especially in in, in, in Washington, D.C. I look all around this country and I see all kinds of good politics and sanity, quite frankly. I mean, I see governors and mayors that are doing a good job in many places around the country. But you're quite right that that, you know, to, to, to talk about making America great again is a good aspiration as long as we know what it actually means. And let's get back to the original coinage of that statement, which you exactly were right about. It was Ronald Reagan who said that in 1980 at the Detroit Convention where he was now, – now, this is the important part. He was extolling the virtue of immigrants to this country when he said it. He said they remind us of who we are as a people. They have the enthusiasm and the energy, and, and he was talking about making America great again the way that these people wanted to as well. We have a lot of problems with immigration in this country, but we have to remember that we are a country of strivers. We're a country of – ambitious riffraff. And once we remember that, then we can really work together to try to make this country as great as it can possibly be. And I actually believe that we can. I actually believe I actually believe that we will. I think that things are going to turn over the next five years in a much more positive direction than, than they've gone before. And what's the key element in that? There's a new Gallup poll that we're going to be talking about on the air today. And it's a, a poll that says that uh, they ask people, are you satisfied or dissatisfied? with the situation in the United States at large, 77% of Americans of every political orientation say uh, that we are dissatisfied. What's the most right. important thing that the next president, whoever it happens to be, could do to maybe increase the levels of satisfaction of optimism that the country needs? Well, to begin with, the president of the United States has to stop trashing the other side, which is half of the country. That's what presidents have been doing for years and years and years, to say that the people who didn't vote for him or him are ignorant or stupid or evil or who hate America. And that's what really drives down people's optimism about the future of the country is when the leaders of this country are actually talking down the country. And that's really important. Now, the reason I'm optimistic, quite frankly, Michael, is that the sweep of history is actually pretty positive. And I know it doesn't feel that way right now. But if you'll notice, about every 50 years or so, we go through the cycles that we've currently seen. From 1968 to 1973, there was political bombings and unrest and polarization and contempt and hatred. And, and a lot of people, I remember my father thinking that it was kind of the end of the republic, most likely, and that these elections mattered more than any other. You know, in, in, in early 19, 1973, 1974, exactly 50 years ago from today, there was a belief that we could never be great again. And six years later, Ronald Reagan was president of the United States. We had a conservative president with great values, incredibly optimistic, who built the country 
more positively, more optimistically, with you know a greater sense of capitalism and national strength and good values than we'd seen in a very long time. That tends to be the, the, the trajectory that we ordinarily see in cases like this, and I think we just might again. And uh, in terms of that trajectory, it, it involves the larger world beyond our borders as well. Uh, do you believe, as many conservatives do, that uh, the United States has a role to play in the world on behalf, say, of the struggle for survival in the Ukraine or the struggle for security and survival in Israel? Of course. Absolutely. The, the, the world is a much more dangerous place when the United States is not present. I don't think we're the world's policemen. I don't think that we have to be involved in every single uh, uh, conflict around the world or solve everybody else's problems. But the truth is that the most dangerous world that we could be part of is one in which the United States actually isn't strong. You know, and I travel all over the world all the time. I go to India a lot, for example, for my work. When I'm meeting with public officials, they'll tell me that one of the reasons that that region of the world is so dangerous right now is because it looks like we have a weak foreign policy. Both Democrats and Republicans are stepping back from America's role in the world. In so doing, they create all of these situations where conflict is actually going to be more possible. That's bad for us in all sorts of ways. You know, it's interesting because, you know, I'm, we're a military family. I think, as you know, my son is a Marine sniper. No wow. joke. And one of the things that they're fine, that, oh, it's just wonderful. My son, he's a, he's a patriot. He would die for this country. He would die for every single person listening to us right here. Now, it's important to him. It's important to all of us that we have a role in building a better world because that's what it means to be an American, quite frankly. But also, it's a very practical decision for all of us to want to live in a country that's peaceful and free and prosperous and where the United States can be in the lead economically, not just militarily.